Today's scripture reading is going to be Exodus 20, 1 through 6. Uh, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and it describes how God brought his people out of Egypt. Uh, we'll be in the 20th chapter of Exodus, which is the start of when God gives his people the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Hi again, New Hope Fellowship, and all of you who are guests with us today. It really is wonderful to be worshiping the Lord with you uh, and to be hearing from him too, which is what we're about to do as we jump into his word. Thank you, Elise, for reading from Exodus chapter 20 for us. If you've been around here for the past couple of weeks, you know that we just recently began a journey through the Ten Commandments as found in Exodus 20. And today we're going to spend some time in the second of those commandments. Perhaps you've noticed, if you were listening, as Elise read those first two commandments, there's a clear connection between the two of them. Both of them have to do with worship. But here's one way to to, to distinguish between these first two commandments. The first commandment tells us who to worship and who not to worship. The second commandment tells us how to worship and how not to worship. So the first commandment tells us there's only one God. And this one God says, you shall have no other gods before me. He's telling us who to worship him and who not to worship any other little g, fake, counterfeit gods. And here in the second commandment, he's saying how to worship and how not to worship. There's similarities here for sure, and there's overlap, but the emphasis in the second commandment is on the how. So let's look at Exodus chapter 20 one more time. Verse 4 says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything, that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. So God is saying no images, no likenesses of anything. And some have understood this to mean that God, for some reason, doesn't like art. As if God is saying here, don't paint, don't sculpt, don't draw, don't photograph. I don't like images. But the very next verse is vital here if we're going to understand God's meaning. In verse 5, he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Five makes sense of verse four here. What God is forbidding is making images and worshiping those images. Making something that looks like something and then worshiping that something. During the Protestant Reformation, which was a movement that took place during the 16th century in Europe, many leaders of that movement interpreted this commandment to mean that we should get rid of every 
image from every place of worship. Every church building, every cathedral should be uh, cleaned out of all images. So they got rid of every statue, every crucifix, every stained glass window with an image of Jesus on it. And you can see what they were doing. They're trying to obey this command because, because in their eyes, these images that were often found in church buildings had become objects of worship, right? So people would, for instance, bow down before a crucifix and pray to the crucifix, or they would light candles before a statue, or, or they might even travel miles and miles to, to see some religious relic as if there was power and deity locked up in that relic. And so the Protestant reformers tried to get rid of all that. It's where the, you've heard the term iconoclast. An iconoclast originally was someone who destroyed icons. And icons, unlike the way we understand the word icon today, an icon was an image that would be used in churches for the purpose of worship. And so originally these icons were meant to be uh, used for instruction, to teach, maybe an image of Jesus or of Mary or of some other biblical figure. But over time, the reformers were concerned that these images had become objects of worship, as if they were God or they provided access to God. And so the iconoclasts were those who would destroy, get rid of all these icons. We can argue really about whether or not the Protestant reformers went too far in trying to obey this command. But the point is that, I mean, for instance, even in, in the Old Testament, we read that when God commanded his people to build a temple and a tabernacle, to erect a tabernacle for him, he actually told them to put images in the tabernacle, in the temple. There were carved images of angels and of flowers and of other uh, objects. So maybe we could argue that the reformers went too far, but, but either way, what seems to have motivated them was they, they recognized that we as humans have this tendency, our, our hearts are, are for some reason driven towards worshiping made things, beautifully crafted things. I remember many, many years ago, I was, um, I was in a, a, a cathedral in New Jersey because I was um, uh, speaking at, a, at, at the funeral mass of a friend. And I went with my son, who's my oldest son, but at the time he was probably five years old or four, and I'm walking down the, the aisle of this cathedral, and there are statues on both sides, big statues of saints, and my son, Marcelo, looked at them and he said, Dad, there's a lot of idols in this place, he said. And I was kind of distracted. I just said, yeah, I guess, I guess so. And we kept walking. He goes, but actually, Dad, he goes, they're only idols if you worship them, he said. And I thought, this is very insightful and this is very true. What makes a statue into an idol? It's when you worship it. Otherwise, it's just a statue. In any case, what does all this have to do with us? What does it have to do with us? Because really, how many of us are really in the habit of carving statues and then bowing down to them, burning incense before them? How many of you did that this week? Many 21st century uh, New Yorkers aren't really about that. So we might ask, how is any of this relevant? Maybe, maybe it mattered for, for superstitious idol worshipers long ago, but it doesn't really matter to me at all. 
Well, we're going to see today, I hope, that these words speak as powerfully into our cultural milieu as, as they did to God's people. They speak as powerfully to us as they do to God's, did to God's people in the 13th or, or 14th century B.C. And for us to see that, we need to think about what underlies this kind of idolatry. We need to ask, why is it that someone thousands and thousands of years ago would carve an image or perhaps even in cultures now, somewhere around the world, why would they culture, or carve images or paint images and then worship them? Why did this form of idolatry even exist? Well, here's what we need to see. Physical idols. These, these crafted things that people will worship. They were always about two things. They were always about convenience and they were about control. Convenience and control. You see, in the ancient world, gods, little g gods, were thought of as powerful, but also dangerous, maybe even unpredictably dangerous. But by using an idol, large or small, you could contain the power of that god. You can contain that power and even protect yourself from the danger posed by that god. You see, an idol for a religious person or a superstitious person in ancient times would take an unpredictable God and make him into something that you can now put in your house or you can even put in your pocket. Now your house is protected or you are protected. As long as you perform certain rituals and certain rites for this little God, in a sense, he has no choice but to bless you to bless your crops, to bless your business, to bless your health. All you have to do is feed it, so to speak, whatever it wants. If there's incense needs to be burned, you can do that. If it, if it needs to be prayed to or sacrificed to, you can do that. If food needs to be set up in front of it, you can do that. But as long as you're meeting its needs, it's got to provide for you. It's got to have your back. And so the powerful, unpredictable, dangerous deity becomes convenient and controllable right there at your disposal. In fact, with a God like this, who's just something that you made with your hands, you can take that God out and put him away whenever you want. Like your own little elf on a shelf. These images, what they did is they reduced God to silent, movable objects at your disposal. We read in the Old Testament of some people having what they called household idols. They're small idols that would be in your home. You bring them out. When you don't want them out, you can put them back in the garage like your Christmas decorations or up in the attic. When the need arises, they are conveniently there to serve you. So as we try to think about what the second commandment has to say to us, so culturally distant from those ancient Israelites, we need to ask ourselves, when it comes to the way that you think about God or the way that you interact with God, are you after convenience and control? Are you after convenience and control, somewhat like those ancient worshipers were? So as with every other 
uh, commandment in the Ten Commandments. We, we've been seeing over the past couple of weeks that each of them, over the past couple of weeks, that each of them does at least four things. They provide us with revelation, confrontation, instruction, and promise. And, and I'll just explain what that means again. It means that each commandment reveals to us something about God that we need to see. Each commandment also confronts us with something about ourselves that we need to see. Each commandment also instructs us about how to live, and each one also points us to a promise, a promise that we need to hear and believe. So what does the second commandment tell us about God? What does it reveal about the character of God? Well, one thing it shows us is that God cannot be tamed. He cannot be manipulated. He will not be controlled or contained. In verse 5 of Exodus 20, he says he's a jealous God. We looked at this last week. If you were here, maybe you remember. Uh, Jealousy to us sounds like weakness, but not in this case. We might think of a person who's jealous as a person who is insecure. A person who's jealous of someone else's looks or someone else's house or their car or or their career. We think, man, that's a, that's, a, that's a character flaw, isn't it? That jealousy. Why can't you just be happy for them and content with what you have? Or we might think of jealousy in terms of the jealous lover who, who's insecure about their relationship and constantly looking for assurance. But the Hebrew word that's translated here as jealous can also be translated differently. It could be translated as zealous. The two words related. Jealous? Zealous. You see, this word for jealous here, it has to do with being protective of something, committed to something. In John 2, it says that Jesus was zealous for the house of his father. Jealousy, for the, a zeal for the house of his father consumed him. So when he saw people misusing the temple, using it um, uh, for their own gain, he was filled with zeal, it says. And he threw them out of the temple. He was protective of his father's house, protective of his father's worship. We just finished studying Titus a few months ago, and Titus tells us to be zealous for good works. What does that mean? It means eagerly committed to doing what's good, right? So so if we call that jealousy, that's a different kind of jealousy, isn't it? That kind of jealousy, which could be called zeal, is a kind of it's other-centered. It, it's not insecure. It's not about ego. This kind of jealousy is about seeking the good of the other, protecting the other, protecting the relationship between you and the other. Think about it within the context of marriage, like we did last week. For a spouse to say to their spouse, no, you can't cheat on me, is not a character flaw. That's not an expression of weakness. That's an expression of zeal. That kind of jealousy that says, I won't share you with someone else in a marriage relationship is saying, no, 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 I will not share you with someone else because I want to protect you. I want to protect this household. I want to protect this covenant from the destruction that will come if you are unfaithful. That's the kind of jealousy that God has for us. The kind of jealousy that says, because we are in covenant together, he will not allow us to go off and destroy ourselves and destroy our relationship with him. He's a jealous God. One reason that God is so zealous 
or jealous for the worship and faithfulness of his people is because he knows that idolatry damages us. And not only that, we learn in Exodus 20, when we worship false gods, not only does it damage us, he says it actually impacts generations. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is a difficult passage, and it's been interpreted in different ways. Theologians have argued about it. Is, is, is this saying that God punishes children for the sins of their parents? That seems terribly unfair. To us, and perhaps it looks so unfair to us because we've lost the sense of, of how sin has generational effects, how, how sin is not just personal, sin has social effects, it has familial effects within our households. It doesn't just affect us when we fall into sin, like the sin of idolatry. I mean, at the very least, we know this, right? All of us have parents, and we know that to some degree, the failures of our parents have affected us, haven't they? The sins of our parents, though they may have been few and far between, or they may have been abundant, the sins of our parents have affected us. We've inherited some of the consequences of their poor decisions, haven't we? And if you're a parent, you know, maybe you're already seeing how your children in some ways are inheriting your sins, You see either your sins affecting them, or in some cases, you see your very sins showing up in their lives, like they're doing the same things that you have done. If we live within the context of family, we know that there's a generational impact. And God, even if we can't understand exactly what God is saying here, we know this much. We know that sin impacts for generations, that there are patterns and consequences of sin that are inherited from parent to child and all the way down the line. But Exodus 20 tells us that the flip side of that is also true. Not only is generational sin, however you want to understand that, that term, a reality, but so is generational blessing. I wonder, I wonder how many of us can trace back in our family. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I wonder if you can trace back in your family to who was the first follower of Jesus in your line, in your family. Maybe for some of us you don't know. Maybe you're the first one. I don't know. But if you can, trace back to the first Christian in your family. I trust that if you do some research, you'll find that that, that person and that person coming to love and know Jesus represents a turning point in your family, in the generations that led up to you, a shift in the trajectory of your family line. Because God says in verse 6 that he shows steadfast love to thousands. And that could be interpreted, to, that could be translated to say to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. I can look back at my family to the first person on either side, on my dad's side, on my mother's side, the first person who came to Christ, and I can track back and see there was a shift that happened in our family there. And there has been blessing and blessing and blessing and blessing ever since. Yes, God has the power to bless and to punish. One thing that this commandment reveals to us about God, if nothing else, is that he is sovereign. He is sovereign. 
That is, he is in complete authority over all things. You know, in ancient times, the gods, the little g-gods that people worshipped all over the world, these gods had specializations. They were like doctors, in a sense, right? You don't go to a dermatologist because you, you've got stomach pain, right? You don't go to an orthopedist because you feel depressed. You need help with something, you go to the right doctor. In much the same way, in ancient days, there were gods that cared about your health, so to speak. There were little g-gods that people believed cared about your business, others that cared about other things. And so if you need help with your health, there's a God for that. You need help with money, there's a God for that too. Like that old, you remember the whole commercial? There's an app for that? It was an Apple commercial? There's an app for that. There's a God for that. They each, see, each God, little g God, had their lanes that they had to stay in. Their own departments, so to speak. But when the Lord speaks to his people here in Exodus 20, he's telling them, he's telling them, not to fashion little gods in his image, to, 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 to image him, because he is not like these other gods. When he tells his people not to fashion little gods for all these different purposes, he's showing he's different. He doesn't have a lane. He doesn't have a specialty. No, he's sovereign over all things. In fact, Maybe, maybe you've noticed this, but when God tells his people not to make images to worship false gods, he's not just saying don't make images to worship these other false gods. He's saying don't make images to worship me either. Look at this together in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is Moses speaking. Moses is uh, he's reminding the, the Israelites of what they experienced at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb when the, when the Ten Commandments were delivered to them. He says, And you people came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. He's telling them, when, God in, when you encountered God on that mountain, God confronted you on that mountain, you heard a voice, you heard his words, but there was no image, there was no form, just a voice. Verse 13, and he delivered to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And verse 15, therefore, because of all you experienced there, therefore, watch yourself very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. And then God goes on from there through Moses to tell his people, not to make idols. He says, don't fashion things that look like animals. Don't fashion things that look like aspects of nature. Don't fashion things. Don't make anything to use to worship me. And the reason is, he says, you already know this about me. I am a formless but powerful God. When you encountered me on the mountain, all you heard was my voice, and you saw my power manifested. But I'm not like these other gods. Not like these other gods. I my, my deity and my, my power can't be captured in some trinket that you make for yourself. He's saying, remember the mountain. 
I spoke to you, but you did not see me. And he's saying that was by design. This is the way I design things. I talk to you, says God, but you can't see me. I'm not like other gods. You can't see me. Remember, idolatry was all about convenience and control. So when God says, you can't see me, he's saying, you also can't contain me or manipulate me. You can't reduce me to something controllable for you to use. The Lord is not convenient or controllable. He's not even fully comprehensible. He's certainly not compliant with us. He says, you can't reduce me. And at the same time that, there, that he was there on that mountain, speaking to his people, he was everywhere else in the world simultaneously, omnipresent. In fact, there is nowhere in the world and there is nowhere in your life that he doesn't see into, speak into, and lay claim over. This is something of what the second commandment reveals to us about this God. But this commandment also confronts us, and so we got to move on quick. This is what it confronts us with, at least one thing it confronts us with. We kind of want God to be conveniently controllable. We like when God feels convenient and controllable. Look at Exodus 32. This is, we're jumping ahead in Exodus 32. And this is documenting for us what happened while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. He, there, there, there's lightning, trumpet blast, smoke, fire, all of that. And then Moses comes down the mountain to deliver these commandments to the Israelites. And verse 3 says, so all the people, oh, and then what happened, by the way, just give you some background, what happened is while the people were waiting for Moses to come back down the mountain, they got impatient. They got so impatient, in fact, that they spoke to Aaron, one of their leaders, and said, Aaron, we, we need some other gods here because this isn't working out. We, he, our, this God that you keep telling us about, he's brought us out here. We don't know where we're headed. Moses disappears into the mountain. He still hasn't come back. It's been a long time. Why don't we make some gods? Why don't we make some gods to worship? And Aaron complies. And Aaron says, bring all of your jewelry, bring your earrings, your rings, everything gold to me. And so verse 3 says, so all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Interesting. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And tomorrow, the next day, they had a feast in the presence of this calf. And so it sounds like what's happening here is that the people are saying, we need other gods because this God that you keep telling us about Yes, he rescued us from slavery. Yes he, yes, he parted the Red Sea. Yes, he descended plagues upon Egypt. Yes, he lit up this mountain. But we're not impressed. In fact, we need better gods than this. And so he asks Aaron to make it. But Aaron, on the other hand, is saying, okay, I'm going to make you a calf. But it seems like what he's saying is, I'm going to make you a calf. But, but just so you know, this calf is supposed to represent the real God. They want other gods. He's saying, no, no, I'll make you a calf, but, but we're going we're gonna to have a feast before the Lord. We're going to worship Yahweh, 
the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but we're just going to do it by worshiping this calf. The calf was meant to be an image of Yahweh in a sense. The people didn't trust God and wanted to take control of matters. And so Aaron says, look, look, here's, I'll give you a convenient, controllable God. I'll give, I'll give you Yahweh in a convenient, controllable package. Isn't it interesting that God revealed himself on that mountain with a voice, without any form? The people end up wanting this object that is all form and no voice. It can't talk to them. It can't tell them where to go. It can't encourage them or make any promises to them. They wanted form without voice, and so they created a God like they wanted. And we do this too. New Hope, I really think we do. We don't make golden calves, but we can do this even with the way that we conceive of God, the way that we think about God. We may conceive of God as someone who doesn't really need to be listened to. He, he, can't, he, he doesn't need to be listened to. He can't really tell me how to live or how to worship him. I'll decide all that. I'll decide all that. And so in some ways, the way that we interact with God can reveal the fact that rather than submitting to him as sovereign Lord, we're the ones who really want to have control over him, over ourselves. And so we create gods of our own image. We may call him Yahweh. We may call him the Lord. We may call him Jesus. But in some cases, maybe it's just a figment of our imagination. A God that we made up to suit our sensibilities. A God who agrees with us, never contradicts us, never is too demanding of us, and always does what we ask him to. Some of us, we want a God of convenience. God who lets us worship him however we want, whenever we want, lots of options. We want the convenience and compliance of those household gods I mentioned earlier. It's a God in a comfortably domesticated and tame and usable. We can bring him out when we need him and put him away when we don't, when we don't feel like listening to him anymore. Some of us want a God that we can manipulate. Rather than submit to him, we want him to submit to us. We want him to listen to us and respond, but we don't really want to listen to what he has to say. I think of it kind of like the way we interact with a vending machine. There's a vending machine in, in our office, in our church offices. It's the worst. It's one of those, it's one of those vending machines, you know, with the, the, the coil, the twisty kind of rack, and you put in the money and the, you choose and the, 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 the coil turns. And your bag of chips is supposed to fall, only the bag of chips never falls. So sometimes you double down. You say, if I put in another 75 cents, the other bag will push this bag and they'll both fall. And sometimes it doesn't happen. This machine is obviously supposed to be about convenience, and I'm supposed to be able to control it. I'm supposed to put in what it's asking for, and it's supposed to, without fail, give me what I need. But it almost never does it. And that makes me mad. And so what I'll do sometimes is I'll start shaking it. 
I'll start banging it. And I know other people in our office do the same because sometimes I can feel the, the floor in our offices shake because this heavy piece of machinery is getting jostled around. And usually that sound of banging is accompanied by the, the, the sound of cursing and grunting and yelling. I've never once seen anyone put money in that machine, the chips get stuck, and they say, your will be done, machine. It's in your hands. You know what I want, but I submit to your will. No one. No one. And perhaps this is the way some of us respond to God. We get frustrated with God when he, when he doesn't do what we expect, when he doesn't do what we, our bidding. And rather than saying, Lord, we submit to your will, you are the sovereign one. You know what is best. I have asked and you have said no, or you have said wait. And so I will wait and submit to you. Instead, we get angry. And so we try to control God so that he has to give us what we want. You know, some, of, some, some folks, maybe you can relate to this. I know I can. Some folks could even use God's commands, the Ten Commandments, as a means to control God. What I mean is this. We could receive these Ten Commandments and think, okay, Ten Laws. If I obey these, if I try really hard, God has to do what I want him to do. God has to love me. God has to do my bidding. He has to provide everything that I desire. Because look, I've fulfilled the requirements. I've put in the $1.75. I've obeyed the Ten Commandments. And so the obedience itself becomes a way of controlling. We think that we're being submissive when we obey God, but for some of us, we're actually, we're actually trying to exert control over him. We saw this some months back when we were looking at the parable of the prodigal son, right? And we looked at a, an, that older brother in that, in that account, that older brother who always obeyed his father, always did what his father told him to, and then finally at the end of the day says, you owe me. I've obeyed you consistently, and now you're not making good on what I desire from you. Obedience for him was a way of controlling and exerting sovereignty over his God and over his Father. And, and sadly, I think that some of us, I know I have, treated God that way. Hmm. Maybe we can see a little bit of ourselves in those Israelites who, were, who felt that temptation to want to make God in their own image so that they could control him, so that he'd be convenient even, even so that he could become customizable. Some of us, we, we want a God who's customizable. Here's what I mean. Throughout history, people have tried to take certain aspects of who God is, emphasize those, and ignore other parts that they don't like. It's a customizable God. You build them, to, just like when you're shopping for a car, and you pick all the accessories you want. You click build it, and then you go through, and then you realize you can't afford it, or maybe you can, but you, you go through the process of putting together the, the dream vehicle. And we treat God that way, by eliminating certain attributes that we don't like and emphasizing others we like. Let me give you an example about this from history. Uh, some years ago, my family and I were in Washington, D.C. We got to visit the, the Museum of the Bible, and at the Museum of the Bible, we saw something called the Slave Bible. Have you ever heard of the Slave Bible? I'm going to read for you a description of the Slave Bible. The Slave Bible, as it would have been, become known, was originally published in London in 1807 on behalf of the Society for the Conversion of Negro Slaves, an organization 
dedicated to improving the lives of enslaved Africans toiling in Britain's lucrative Caribbean colonies. They used the slave Bible to teach enslaved Africans how to read, while at the same time introducing them to the Christian faith. Unlike other Bibles, however, the slave Bible contained only select parts of the biblical text. Its publishers deliberately removed portions of the biblical text, such as the Exodus story, that could inspire hope for liberation. Instead, the publishers emphasized portions that justified and fortified the system of slavery that was so vital to the British Empire. You see, they had created a customizable Bible to fit their own sensibilities and then to then share those sensibilities with enslaved people so that those enslaved people would worship the same customized God as their slave owners did. Long after slavery was abolished, this, this tendency still continued to exist. For hundreds of years, many people in America still wanted a God who didn't care about segregation, who didn't care about unequal pay or unjust housing laws or unfair policing. So they created a God that fit their sensibilities. How, how do we try to rule over God? Like I said, sometimes it's by ignoring what he reveals about himself and just believing what we want to believe about him. Have you ever heard someone say, I, I can't believe in a God who would do that? I, I get where that's coming from, but it, but it fails to see the fact that whether we believe who he reveals himself to be or not doesn't change the fact that that's who he is. And so there's wisdom in actually submitting ourselves to what he reveals about himself. And rather than saying, I can't believe in a God who would say that, saying, why does this God say that? Let me learn from him. Let me try to understand where he's coming from. Let me submit myself to him. Yeah, so often we reject the things about God that we don't like. But here's the thing. If your God, if your version of God never contradicts you, it's probably because you made him up. If your God never says anything that you're uncomfortable with, if he never says anything that you intuitively disagree with, you probably made him up. It's not a coincidence that your God always agrees with you. He's a figment of your imagination. And so often, many of us, we limit, we, we limit God to accommodate our own Values, And so we'll take the God of the Bible, but we'll customize him in such a way so that we can reduce him to the things that we think he should be. And we pay attention to what he says when it resonates with what we think. We reduce God to the things we are concerned about so that consequently God only cares about the things that we care about. How convenient is that, isn't it? He, we may say, cares about unborn lives, but he doesn't care about inmates. He cares about abolishing uh, abortion. He doesn't care seemingly about abolishing racism. He cares about the poor, but he really doesn't care about who you sleep with. You see how this works. It's almost arbitrary. We can just choose certain aspects and reject others. I hear technology may soon allow parents to choose their kids' features. Have you heard this? 
Maybe it's already possible, but I've heard that the technology is almost there. We can, we can choose designer children. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing about my kids. But, but we, we're, you can create designer kids. Imagine that. We've been creating designer gods for many, many years. It's a subtle process by which we do this. God is not limited to one cause. He's not limited to one party or one nation or one issue or one denomination. He is who he is, and he is bigger than us. He cares deeply about people and issues that aren't even on your radar or my radar. And when he calls attention to that, the wisest thing for us to do is to repent and to listen to him. We need to end here. We need to end here. This commandment instructs us, and here's how it instructs us. It teaches us that the way to freedom is to submit to a God who is sovereign. That that worshiping the little G gods of our own imagination will destroy us. Look at this passage, beautiful passage from Psalm 135. I find it beautiful anyway. It says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You see, God is describing these customized, convenient, controllable idols that people around the world make. And he's saying, when you worship them, you become like them. You become blind to what is good and true and beautiful. You become unable to recognize and respond to what is good and true and beautiful. And ultimately, you are lost. You become lifeless. We were created in the image of God, and yet when we worship false ideas of who he is and reject the reality of who he is, we end up becoming less and less human. Isn't that interesting? We see this to some degree in our culture over history. Idolatry has left us blind to the beauty and the worth of others, confused about our identities, confused about why we're here. The way out of that fog, God says, is to submit to the sovereignty of who he is, to be instructed by him. Lastly, this passage gives us a promise. There's a promise here. The promise is that God, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, hears and sees and speaks and acts. So that when we need him, as we always do, he will hear us, he will see, he will speak, and he will act on our behalf. He's not powerless like those customizable, convenient, controllable, handmade gods. Exodus 2.23 says that while God's people were in Egypt, in slavery, it says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew And we could add to this because we see it in the scriptures. 
and God moved to rescue them. He's not like these other gods. The gods of our imagination are unable to truly save us. But this God sees and hears and he remembers and he knows us. He communicates truth to us and only truth in his word. And he acts to rescue us. That's the promise of this passage. And there's a deeper promise too that we'll end with. The deeper promise here is that this God who engaged his people there on Mount Sinai with with just a voice and no form, one day, one day, this God would take on form. He would accommodate us and take on form. Philippians 2, 7 says, But Jesus, the Son of God, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Imagine the God who says, I don't need, I am who I am. You can't see me. Finally says, I will make myself visible to you. I will take on the form of not just a person, but a servant who's willing to live and die in your place. When God said, don't make images of me. Part of the reason he said that is because he planned all along to send the perfect image of himself. And he did that in the person of Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We don't need to make images. Colossians 2.9 says, for in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Remember, the psalmist in Psalm 135 says, when you worship these fake gods, you become like them. Well, when we worship the true God, we become like him too. We will become like the one we worship, one way or another. Worship a God of your own imagination, you become like that. Worship Jesus, you will become like him. This is the promise that we find in this, in this commandment and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, your Son, and in the power of your Spirit, confident that you hear us and see us. You are alive and active and sovereign. Father, we live in a a visual culture. We want to see and touch. Lord, help us to, help us, help us, Lord, to listen to your voice to worship you as you've called us to worship you. Communicate to us via your word. Communicate to us via this supper that we're about to take. And give us hearts that are willing and and eager, zealous, Lord, to submit to and know you, our sovereign, almighty God. In Jesus' name.